morning. I'm Ryan Jacobson. I get to be one of the pastors here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. Please remain standing with me and pray with me as you're able. Stay comfortable as you're able. Uh, Pray with me the prayer that we pray in each of our services here at this church. This prayer is called the Shema. It's taken both from the lips of Jesus and from the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And it's a prayer that Jesus would have prayed multiple times each day especially when approaching the text. And so part of our discipleship to Jesus is to join him in this practice. The first part of it's in Hebrew and the second part's in English, and you'll see some of us raise our pinkies as we pray this prayer. This for us is a a reminder that there is enough power and grace and compassion in the finger of God to change our hearts and minds in our entire world. So please join me in this prayer. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Now hear these words as I read to you from the eighth chapter of Luke's account of the Acts. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Kandake, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join in. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? The eunuch replied, How can I, unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this week, we continue on our sermon series, Beginning at the End. We started this series with a couple of the resurrection accounts at the end of Luke, and then we spent several weeks moving through the first two chapters of the book of Acts. This week, we follow in the, not necessarily footsteps, but in the habit of disappearing and reappearing somewhere else, of Philip, and we skip about seven chapters, six chapters, to get to chapter 8. And the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. As we begin our discussion of this scripture this morning, I want to share with you a letter that I read this week. 
This letter was written from a father to a priest in England. The priest is the dean of a chapel at King's College in Cambridge, and the father opens his letter with these words. Dear Reverend Dr. Curry, I would like to apologize for bringing my autistic son to Evensong at your chapel. You can imagine the shock that I felt reading such an opening. I won't read the entire letter from this father to this priest, but here are some of the highlights. I chose to attend Evensong on Trinity Sunday, also Father's Day, with my two sons, one of whom is autistic. Tristan is nine years old and is a clever and joyful child who loves church building services and choral music. He is also nonverbal and expresses his excitement by calling out and laughing. His expressions are often loud and uncontainable. It is part of who he is, so there's no realistic way for him to be quiet. Many autistic people are like Tristan in this way. Right before the Kyrie, one of the ushers informed me that you had instructed him to remove us. Tristan's expressions were apparently interfering with the enjoyment of some of the other visitors, which was very inconsiderate on our part, because tourists come from all over the world to hear the Evensong. Might I suggest that you place a sign at the front of the chapel clearly identifying which categories of people are welcome and which people are not. While I admire the level of snark that this father employs in this writing, it's not necessarily the reason that I highlight this letter. The reason that I highlight this letter is because it was actually written this week about services last Sunday. The world over, our church is still having a lot of issues about determining who's welcome to fully participate within the life of the church. And though in our home denomination, deliberations about the inclusion and participation of LGBTQ people is a hot topic, all over the world, there are a lot of people that are called us, and there are far too many people that are called them. The father that wrote this letter did post an update a day or two later, and he posted the Reverend Dr. Curry's reply. Reverend Curry was deeply saddened by what he had experienced. He deeply apologized for what this family had gone through, and he explained that it was a misunderstanding. The Reverend had not asked this family to be removed, but as a gracious Reverend should, he took full responsibility for what happened within his chapel. I think trying to interpret this in the best light that we possibly can, that it probably was a genuine misunderstanding, that the usher did not know or understand the special needs of this family. The question, though, remains, why did the usher find this necessary, and why did he feel empowered, and how did he feel empowered to ask this family to leave? What boundaries had been built in this place of worship, and who was entitled to enforce them? Boundaries are what this Ethiopian eunuch would have faced as he went to Jerusalem in the first century. According to our story, this man was doubly condemned, condemned from the worshiping society. First, as an Ethiopian, this man is a foreigner and likely not of Jewish blood, and so that is boundary number one. Second, both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the very verses, the very books from which we take the Shema, both have a verse that says, 
that people that have damaged or castrated genitalia are be, to be removed from the assembly of the people of God. This is the second boundary that this man faced. Now, this Ethiopian eunuch is portrayed in a way that tells us much about what Luke wants to open us up to here. This is a man of significant means. His official position within the court of the Kandake or the queen mother of an Ethiopian nation tells us that this is not a man that's used to being on the margins. But Luke, the physician, does want us or does not want us to be confused about what this story opens. The boundaries that this man faces are specifically to do with racial and ethnic identity as well as biological and gender identity. Now, I want to take some time this morning to talk about boundary-driven thinking and the way that it develops within humanity. In the 1960s, a man named Claire Graves developed a model of human development that helps us to evaluate the worldview of the people around us and our own worldviews. The worldview is the way that we see the world around us and the way that we think about what happens in the world around us. It doesn't govern what we think, but just how we think about it. And so the development and evaluation of boundaries within a worldview help us to see how people think and what they think about. Two of Dr. Graves' students, Don Beck and Chris Cowan, took uh, doctor's work, Dr. Graves' work and elaborated on it, and it became known in its present-day form as spiral dynamics. Now, I know it's strange to hear something about spiral dynamics and human development within a church, but please bear with me for a little while. I facilitate a class here at the church called Spiral Dynamics every once in a while because those of us that have explored this model of human development have found within it something that has helped us to become better Christ followers and better people in general. It's helped me to understand my own life, the way that I've thought about things throughout the world or throughout my life. It's helped me to better understand the world of the Bible, the biblical authors, and the worlds of the people that have interpreted the Bible for centuries. And it's also helped me to better love my neighbors, allowing me to explore the ways that my neighbors think, whether they're near or far. And so this morning, I want to offer to you a brief introduction of Spiral Dynamics as told through my observations and hopes and expectations for my son. Some of you know that I'm the father of a beautiful toddler boy that goes by the name of Oliver. And at two and a half years old, Oliver has already done a remarkable amount of growing up. In the beginning, when he was born, and in the early stages of his infancy, Ollie was entirely dependent upon the world around him for care. His mother and I and a big and beautiful network of people uh, tried to give him the food and water and shelter that was necessary for his growth. In Oliver's reality, it was these biological needs that were of the greatest concern. Oliver didn't cry because he was worried about whether he'd get into college. He cried because he was hungry, because he was thirsty, because he was dirty. This early stage is often called the survival stage or the instinctive stage. And it's in this stage that Oliver did not necessarily have the ability to distinguish himself from the world around him. He knew that the world provided when he was thirsty, and so there was some connection in his mind between himself and the world. Somehow, in this place, Oliver and the world were one. 
But as Oliver grew and his needs were met, he began to develop the, com- the capacity for more complex thought. Perhaps he began to notice that one of his parents was more in tune with his needs than the other, and I will say it wasn't me. This began to lead to differentiation. He began to notice that the world isn't what provided for him, but that some other provided for him. And when it is time, when you notice one other, it is very easy to begin to notice more others. This is one of the first real boundaries that we develop as human beings. There is a difference between me and you at a most fundamental level. But in this differentiation, there is also some other interesting developments. Oliver began to recognize tribal boundaries. There was mama and there was dada for sure, but there were also these other people within this tribe, people that offered him care and nurture and affection. But there were also people that weren't in that tribe. There were people that were not familiar, that had not provided care. And so Oliver began to develop a sense of boundaries of who was safe and who he did not feel was as safe. Those boundaries weren't necessarily always accurate, but they were born. This tribal stage then gives way next to what is often called the warrior stage. As Ollie grew more and continued to have his biological needs met, as well as these new needs for security and safety in the tribe, he again developed the capacity for new thought, and he began to develop what we might call an ego. These so-called terrible twos are the home of this next phase of human development. In this stage, Oliver begins to notice that he not only has the ability to say no, but that he has an actual will of his own, and he has means by which to implement that will. He's begun to push the boundaries that we've placed around him, testing to see what really must stand and what might be left behind. The challenge here for Kylie and I is that we need to allow this exploration, this growth of self, in healthy and generative ways in order for Ollie to truly gain a sense of himself. But we still must provide limits and boundaries that keep him safe. That's just two and a half years. The spiral goes on to several levels, which I'll speed through a little bit as we move forward. These are what I hope Ollie experiences as he continues to grow. My hope is that as Oliver continues to mature, that the natural rebellion of these terrible twos would soften as he moves into what is called the purposeful stage. Here, he'll begin to learn that there's certain principles that we live by. He'll begin to learn what honor is and what responsibility is, and his tribal boundaries will begin to grow. It might become his school or his city or his nation. Whichever it is, the number of people within his tribe will grow, but the boundaries will remain. And in some ways, though these boundaries are abstract, they become more tangible. The boundaries that he might see between his religion and someone else's may be an abstraction, but it's something that you can feel real tension when you approach, something that can often lead to devastation. And so what I hope is that Oliver will take what is valuable from this purposeful stage and move beyond it. His ego will begin to manifest once again as he learns that the boundaries that are given to him by me and by his faith and by his nation are not always the most healthy ways to interact with the world. He'll move into what we call the strategic level. And in this level, like the warrior in the instinctive phases before it, much is concerned with the self. 
It's here that Oliver will again learn that he has the ability to manipulate the world around him. He will assert himself competitively, and success and ambition will be major drivers. But again, I hope that he continues to mature. My hope is that this would begin to exhaust him and that he might learn that there's more to life than success and ambition. He'll move into the next stage, which is called the holistic stage. And it's in this important stage that Oliver will again realize the importance of connection with the world and people around him. This holistic stage is marked by the desire for community, harmony, equality, and consensus. Here, the boundaries of his community will grow again. Lines between race, ethnicity, religion, sexual identity, and more will subside, but there is still going to be one big boundary. While just about anybody can belong to your tribe in this stage, those that would exclude somebody from the tribe are excluded. Judgmentalism is judged very harshly here. It will not be allowed within this new tribe. And so let's quickly review. First, there is one. There's Oliver, and though his thinking here is not complex, there is a sense of oneness with the world. And as he grows, he will see that there is this family tribal boundary. The boundaries are born here, and there are those that are in and those that are outside of the box. Then there is self-expression. There's exploration. There's the pushing of the tribal boundaries as he moves beyond the boundaries that were given to him. But then the boundaries return bigger than they were before. His identity grows, and he begins to find the communities to which he will belong the rules that he's supposed to follow. But then again, self-expression arises. He'll learn that he can bend and break those rules given to him to gain an advantage in the world. And finally, in the last stage that we discussed, he'll find that life is much more enjoyable within the community again. He'll become communally oriented and rebuild his boundary walls. There are a lot of different models of human development. And the proponents of spiral dynamics do not, uh, do not claim that they have a corner on the market. But one of the things that I particularly find remarkable about spiral dynamics is that it's scalable. It can be used to talk about an individual like Oliver, but it can also be used to talk about a group of people. It can be used to talk about a school or a city or a state or a church or a denomination or a nation. And what this means is that we can use spiral dynamics to help us understand the world of the biblical authors. Through the study of their writings and the contemporary and contemporaneous writings and archaeology, we can explore the worlds of the biblical authors and find where they were, what their worldview was, and that will help us to understand the Bible. Unfortunately, we don't have time on a Sunday morning to do this fully. But what I can say is this. The story of the people of Israel begins with a single, undifferentiated human being. It moves through the establishment of a tribal structure and into battles between rival tribes and their warriors. From there, Israel establishes its national identity, complete with a law by which to abide and a duty to dispense. And within that society, from those boundaries, there are those that break from the norm and announce that life can be even better. There are then those that would tear down the boundaries altogether to announce the welcome of the community of God for all 
except for those that would be judgmental. Throughout the Bible, we find that what have been given by God as rules and restrictions and boundaries have often been reinterpreted and transcended by the people of God. Boundaries that were supposedly established by God are later then torn down by the same God. This Ethiopian eunuch is heading home after coming to Jerusalem to worship, and in Jerusalem, he would have found that he was not welcome. He would not have been allowed among the men. He would not have been allowed among the Jews. The boundaries that are spelled out within the law of Israel would have barred him from participation. And so he finds himself on the way home, reading a very troubling passage. Isaiah in chapter 53 says what we read. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. New Testament scholar Robert Wall says that while this is obviously a scripture through which we can point to Jesus, this man is probably not reading it thinking about Jesus. What this section of scripture opens up within the book of Isaiah is four chapters that begin with this chapter 53 that discusses the suffering servant. And it moves into a new covenant and a new creation in chapters 54 and 55. And finally, in chapter 56, we find God himself declaring this. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will separate me from my people or from his people. Do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, I will give them a house within my walls, a monument and a name. And to the foreigners that keep my Sabbaths, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For this house of prayer shall be a house of prayer for all people. The eunuch reads this passage because this passage told him that he would find something much different in Jerusalem than what he found. This passage says that the old boundaries are to be broken, but the temple authority, for some reason, has not gotten that message. And so Philip does announce this message. Philip tells this man the good news of Jesus and tells this man that you do belong, and he immediately guides this man through the initial welcome and full initiation of Christian baptism. The spiral, perhaps taking its cue from the Bible, guides the way to the next step in growth of humanity. Eventually, we all get tired of building our boundaries. Boundaries require a lot of energy to maintain and a lot of energy to defend, and eventually, we find that the boundaries aren't worth keeping. The boundaries become amorphous. We recognize that sometimes the boundaries are necessary, but that often the way that we need to operate in the world needs to go beyond them. Christian scholar Will Willimon, in considering this passage, asks the question, who is the protagonist in this story? Is the eunuch the protagonist? Is it him who, through his humility, after his humiliation, finally finds the welcome that he was seeking? Or is it Philip, whose openness and willingness leads him into this peculiar place and into this peculiar conversation Will Willimon says that it's neither of these guys. It's not Philip and it's not the eunuch. 
The protagonist of this story is the spirit. It's the spirit that we were awoken to in chapter 2. It's the spirit that guides Philip to this place and into this conversation. It's the spirit that opens the possibility of amorphous boundaries. It's the spirit that takes Philip down this road, and it's the spirit that snatches Philip away mysteriously when the invitation is extended. And so may we continue this journey. May we continue to worship and to welcome. May we be led by this same spirit into our own peculiar conversations. May we extend invitation beyond the boundaries that we were given by God in order to welcome the unwelcomable in the name of God. May we realize both the need for healthy boundaries and the necessity of breaking them. May we continue this journey. Amen.